So starting verse 50, it says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who was not con- who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of the preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Father God, we again thank you for this time and we thank you for a chance to open your word. God, we pray for our community. We pray for our state. God, given uh, the previous week and the acts of evil and violence that we have witnessed in our state, Father, we are all the more made aware of of how important uh, you are, uh, the importance of your word, the importance of of God, what you have called us to leading our lives, that we would act out of that, that we would treat other people in love out of that. God, when these horrific things happen, it is difficult for us to comprehend. It is difficult for us to, um, God, forgive. It is difficult for us to wrap our minds around how these things could happen and, and, and who could accomplish them. But, Father, we, we trust you. We know that there is evil in the world. God, as we read these stories in the Gospel of Luke, as we have just this week read the crucifixion of your son, and we know that there is evil in the world. We know that there are those who would kill the innocent. But Father, we ask for your grace in this situation. We ask for your grace to be shed on those families directly affected uh, by this tragedy. And we ask that um, as we read in your word over and over again, God, as we come to this Resurrection Sunday, um, God, that you would work good out of evil and that you would work um, hope out of tragedy. God, that in some way uh, you would use these events in a way that, God, you are glorified and your people are edified. As we open up your word, Father, we ask that you would shine a light on it, shine a light on our hearts, that we would understand it rightly, that we would apply it um, truly, uh, that we would um, know you better, know your son, and love him in a more deep way, and that you would show us the calling that you have upon our lives and how you would have us to live. 
God, this week, uh, we pray for the churches of Blount County. We know that there will be many people in church this week who are not in church any other week during the year. Father, we ask uh, that your spirit would move among them, that they would be awakened to their great need, that they would be awakened to the love and the beauty of Jesus Christ, uh, that they would turn from sin and trust in Christ and be saved. God, that you would use this week to draw people to yourself in a special way. God, bless those opportunities. Bless those relationships that form because of people uh, meeting this week. Um, God, use those to nurture people uh, and and grow them. God, and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the passage that we're looking at tonight is sort of a weird passage. Um, we're talking about the idea of a remnant in times of darkness. A remnant. So notice something about this passage. It seems a little anti-gospel. I don't mean it exactly that way, but it seems like the focus is on the wrong person, maybe. Um, so we're re- we've just read this story that is literally the most important event in the history of the world, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What comes directly after that is, is the, the, the other side of that coin of the most important event that ever happened, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, you know, in those two events, we see the atoning death of a sinless Messiah. Uh, we see prophecy fulfilled. We see the law obeyed. We see salvation accomplished in those two events. And then for this brief moment, in between those two stories of crucifixion and resurrection, we have this story that's largely about a previously unmentioned character. Uh, this man, whose name is Joseph, of Arimathea, who, as far as we can tell from legitimate historical references, is never mentioned again, okay? He disappears from existence after this story, as far as legitimate history goes. I say legitimate because he doesn't disappear from all history. He plays a prominent role in the stories about King Arthur, and the legends that surround the Holy Grail. Uh, er, uh, Joseph of Arimathea is, is a heavy character in those. The, the stories and legends suggest that uh, he took the Holy Grail and that he took it all the way to England, that he was the first missionary to take the gospel to England. And there's all these legends and stories that grow up around him. We have no historical evidence of any of those things. Um, But he becomes this major character in folklore, particularly in the folklore of the the British people. And and that's sort of the reason why I love him as a character, because, man, I love Arthurian legend. I love all that nerd stuff. Um, I was having a conversation with Kyle this week about or Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Like, I mean, it's, I love that stuff. Okay. And so, but the truth is, is man, we don't know anything about this guy. We don't know who he was and we don't know what he did afterwards. He's just this character that appears almost out of nowhere. So why, why are we told this story? Um, why is this character introduced? And also why, along with his being highlighted, why are these also these other women who are at the end and get the last couple of lines? Why are they highlighted 
in this passage? Well, obviously, one reason we could say is, well, because it happened. This is what actually happened. Luke is giving us a uh, an account of these events. And so he's just telling us what happened. And, and Joseph was there, and, and he was part of the group that, that asked for Jesus' body. So that's obvious as part of the answer. But I think it might be the larger reason, the reason why maybe Luke puts this story in his account is that he sees in these people's lives these people living in hope in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering, he sees in their lives the way Jesus has just prescribed for us to live and to meet tragedy in the passages we've been talking about for the last few weeks, particularly those references that Jesus makes to the Psalms. And so if you've not been here, you may have missed a couple of these things, but but we talk about how uh, over the course of this Passion Week, particularly over the course of Jesus' crucifixion, that, that Good Friday day, um, there are all these references in Luke's gospel to Old Testament passages that are pointing towards prophecies that Jesus fulfills, right? And many of those come from the Psalms. And those Psalms all seem to have sort of some general themes that we could zoom in on, like each of those references, as we look to those Psalms, sees the plight, and it talks about the fact that God sees the plight of the oppressed, of the persecuted, of the, and, and, he, and he comes to rescue those people. He talks about the fact that evil men are going to attempt to destroy God's faithful people, but that God's salvation, that his sovereign providence over all things will win the day, right? In spite of the evil and the schemes of evil men, God will win out. That God's faithfulness in all of these things is unfading. Okay? We see those themes over and over again in these passages. And what I think is the case is, is that you see in Joseph of Arimathea and these women, you see people who are actually living out those themes in the midst of tragedy. So let me give you kind of a picture of what I mean by that. So first off, let's talk about this idea that there will always be a faithful remnant. There will always be a faithful remnant. Verse 50 again. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who was who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So the reality is, is this, that even in when things are at their darkest, even when we look around and it seems like everyone has rejected, right? Everyone else in the world has fled. Everyone else has walked away. By God's grace, there will always be a remnant of people who are still faithful to God. This idea, this biblical idea of, of, of a remnant, you see it all over the place. And again, it's the idea that despite the overwhelming opinion of the community or the nation or the world, there will be a people, group of people who hold to God, a group of people who are faithful followers of God despite the circumstances. And so we can think back, particularly in the Old Testament, of various characters who represented a remnant in their own time. So an obvious one would be Noah. Noah and his family represent a remnant. The entire world had walked away from God. The an entire world had had entered into to idolatry, into um, false belief, and certainly not believing in the one true God. And yet Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives were this faithful remnant. 
No matter what the whole world believed, they still followed the one true God. Or maybe the story of Lot, okay? Lot and his family in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah were the faithful remnant. They were the only ones in that whole area who believed in the one true God and trusted him. Probably the most direct reference that we have to this idea of a remnant is the story around the prophet Elijah. And so you remember Elijah, he goes, he has the contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They build their two altars and uh, the the, uh, the prophets of Baal can't get their altar to light. And Elijah mocks the the Baals, and yeah, where's your God at? Is he, is he in the bathroom? Like, is he taking a nap? Like, how come he can't light your fire, right? And then God brings down fire from heaven to ignite Elijah's offering. The people rise up and slaughter the prophets of Baal. Um, and yet, Elijah thinks that that's going to spark revival, but it doesn't. That even in the midst of that, the people still don't turn back to God. And Jezebel calls out and says, I want Elijah dead. And Elijah goes on the run for his life. And he ends up out in the desert. And you probably remember the story. He's out there and he's just sort of like, woe is me, you know. And God says, calm down. What's your problem, Elijah? Like, why are you out here in the desert? I had a job for you. And Elijah says, I'm the only one left. Nobody else in this entire country, none of your people believe in you anymore. None of them are trusting you anymore. They're all on Jezebel's side. And God says, no, there is a remnant. There are 7,000 people left in this country whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, right? So you're not the only one, Elijah. There are others. Joseph of Arimathea is such a man. He is a remnant of faithfulness among this larger group of, of Sanhedrin, of Pharisees, of scribes who have rejected Jesus. Now, he's not the only one. He's the only one that we find out about in, in Luke's gospel. Um, but when we go to the other gospels, we see that a character we have heard of before, Nicodemus. You remember when uh, Nicodemus came in secret to Jesus um, to talk to him at night. Nicodemus was also one of those faithful members of the council who did not consent to falsely accusing and having Jesus executed. And in John's gospel, Nicodemus is also involved in this receiving the body of Christ and taking him to be buried. But Joseph is the character that is in focus in Luke's gospel. And Joseph's faithfulness is, is you could say it's twofold, okay? Because the first thing I think is there is obviously his devotion to Jesus, which were, is his primary motivation, and we're going to come back to that in, in just a second. But there's also this case that Joseph is being faithful to God and his word by his actions towards Jesus. So what we find is that in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a, 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 a command that God has given about anyone who is executed by being hung on a tree. So we've already made references over the course of Luke to the fact that any person who was hung on a tree, the, the Old Testament law said was cursed. And, and, and that is the case with Jesus. Jesus is hung on a tree and he is cursed, right? He is cursed in our place. But Deuteronomy 21, 22 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. 
For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the reality is, is that Joseph, being a, a follower of God, of knowing the law and believing the law, knows that it is not right for Jesus, after he has died, to stay on that cross. Because if they don't get him down before sundown, then nobody's going to touch him over the course of the next day, which is the Sabbath. Sabbath starts at Friday night at sundown, doesn't end until sundown on Saturday. So that means Jesus is going to hang on the cross for that entire day. And Joseph said that would be to break the word of God, right? The Bible has called us not to live that way. We have to take this man down off the cross. And so you see that on one side, even in the midst of all this crazy stuff going on, Joseph is faithful to the commands of God that he already knows, But again, probably more importantly and more to the point, he desires to honor Christ. That's why in verse 52, he asks for the body of Christ. Now notice, Joseph is someone who has been fearful up until this point. John tells us again that while he had not consented to what had happened to Jesus, At the same time, he had been a secret follower of Jesus. He had not made his following and belief in Jesus. He had not put it out there into the Sanhedrin, into the council. It says for fear of the Jews, because he was scared to actually stand up for Christ because he didn't, he knew how everybody would probably receive that, at least of those on the council. But the Bible tells us that he took courage, right? He stepped up. He said, I'm going to do what is right in the face of difficulty. And it says he went to Pilate and he asked for the body, knowing that it would out him to his associates, right? Knowing that doing that, everybody would know whose side he was on at that point. And so uh, there was this consensus, obviously, against Jesus and his followers. And to do this, to act in this way, is there's going to be consequences for that, right? There's going to be relational consequences. There's going to be religious consequences. There's going to be political consequences for aligning your life with Jesus. And, and we can imagine how easy it would be not to, okay? With Jesus' death, it would seem like the, the smart play is to just sort of go, oh, man. Like, I really like Jesus, and I thought he was who he said he was, but he's dead now. So there's no reason to hitch my wagon to Jesus because it it can only hurt me at this point. There's no advantage to helping him. His life is over. His movement is certainly ended, regardless of how faithful a prophet he actually was. Now, I know we mention it a lot, but... I think the case is is that America has been living, the West in general, has been living in a golden age of religious freedom, of Christian normativity, you could say, for a long, long time. And I also think that that probably is coming to an end, if it has not already come to an end. It certainly has come to the end in many places in our country, maybe not in East Tennessee yet, but but it is it is under attack from all areas. But the reality is this: there will always be those, even in the midst of tragedy, 
even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of persecution, there will always be those who will stand with Christ despite the public sentiment, despite the cost that it entails. So many people, many of y'all, if you're on the internet very often, you've probably seen a picture that sort of goes around Facebook a lot and things like that. It's a picture of a guy named August Landmesser. The picture was taken on June 13th, 1936. And the, the picture is striking. You probably at that name, I don't know who August Landmesser is, but maybe you remember the picture. August is standing in a sea of people who are all presenting the Nazi salute. And he is standing with his arms across his chest, not saluting. It's, it's, it was actually, uh, one of, one of, um, Hitler's lieutenants that was, was giving the speech, but, but he's refusing to give that salute. He stands defiantly with his arms folded across his chest in the picture. And, and it's, and it's a striking picture. Well, the backstory on that picture is the reason he is defiantly putting his arms across his chest is because he had fallen in love, love with a woman who happened to be Jewish. And they had fallen in love. They had decided to get married, but the Nazi state saw her as, as life unworthy of living. And so they said, you can't marry her. Um, she's a, she's a subhuman class. You're not allowed to marry her. Um, she was at one point put into something like a concentration camp. Um, and so in that picture, all this has already taken place, right? Um, he's out, already at a point where, um, that he, that he's not been allowed to marry her and, but he's working at a shipyard, uh, in, in Nazi Germany. And again, kind of the same situation. We can imagine a scenario in which it would be so easy to just put your hand up. It would be so easy to just say, you know what? Maybe this will win me a little bit of acceptance. Maybe the people in the party and the Nazi party will see this and they'll just say, you know what? Maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. Let him marry this woman if, if he wants to. But he doesn't. And the reality is, is that ultimately it costs him everything in an earthly sense. The woman that he loved was sent to a concentration camp where she later died. Um, August was conscripted into a basically a criminal's military unit, right, um, in the Nazi army and was put into combat situations and was killed in combat. So now obviously that is a picture. That man was not a Christian and the issue that he was standing up for was not a particular, not a specifically Christian issue, man. But that picture, if you ever see it, is stark. And it is a picture that illustrates the idea that we're talking about here. This idea of a remnant to stand in a sea of evil and say, I'm, I'm not going to toe the line. Right. I'm not going to go with the status quo. I'm going to honor Christ. Come what may. There will always be a faithful remnant who is willing to pay a public cost for following Christ. And Joseph is willing to pay that cost. But an interesting thing is, and we see in this passage is it's not just a public cost that he's willing to pay. He's also willing to pay a very personal cost for Jesus. Verse 53 says, then when, then he took it down, uh, took the body down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. 
So there's only one explanation for how quickly this could have all occurred, and that explanation that we actually see in the other Gospels, like in Matthew's Gospel, was the fact that Joseph already had a tomb, and it happened to be pretty close to the place that Jesus was crucified. And so the tomb that Jesus is placed in is a tomb that is actually Joseph's tomb. Now, tombs were costly things monetarily in that time. The, the, the interesting little fact of archaeology is that the Jewish people had started taking on the traditions, in some ways, of the Romans and the Greeks. And the Greeks and Romans liked ostentatious kind of tombs. They wanted them to be fancy and decorated and, and all these different things like that. And the Jews, as being sort of part of this culture now, had started living in a similar ways. And so sometimes these tombs could be pretty uh, pretty ornate, pretty expensive monetarily. But again, it's not the money that I think is the interesting part. It's the personal nature of the offering that strikes me. Okay, for one, it says the grave has never been used. So odds are it is likely intended for Joseph himself or maybe for like an elderly parent who he thinks is 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 getting ready to die, but probably for Joseph himself. But here's an interesting thing too. It's also likely not just for Joseph, it's for his descendants as well, because family tombs were still a normal tradition, a normal Jewish practice in biblical times all the way up through the Middle Ages. So, so what that meant is that your entire family would be buried in this tomb. And if things went in the normal sort of patterns of, of human life, one generation would die, the bodies would be placed in the tomb. They would, they would disintegrate down to the bones. And then at some point, when the next person, the next generation died, they would roll the tomb open, they would go in, they would collect the bones, put them in a little box. And there's been some, if you pay attention to archaeological news, there's been some of these found in recent years, these bone boxes. They'd store them kind of in a corner or something in the tomb, and they would lay the next generation onto in the graves. They'd seal it back up. Those bodies would disintegrate, and then the next generation, the next generation. You could go on for a long time like that in a single tomb. But whole families, whole generations, multi-generations were buried in these tombs. Probably the most famous of them is what's called the Tomb of the Patriarchs, which is in the, the Palestinian-controlled city now of Hebron, in in Palestine, in the Jewish world, right? Um, but in that tomb, tradition tells us that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah are all buried. And there's you can still go to it. There's actually a castle built around it now. There's a cave in the center of that castle that is the traditional site of, of the burial place of all those Old Testament patriarchs. But anyway, here's what struck me. The incredible, incredibly personal sacrifice that this would have been. So, and, and again, I don't know that everybody feels the same way about these things that I do. But so I was at Pleasant Grove the other day and we were there for some event, church, something or whatever. But I had a few minutes be- between things and I decided to walk through the graveyard. So if you've ever been to Mother Church, it's got a pretty extensive graveyard. Well, I have a lot of family buried in that graveyard. So I have Great-grandparents there, grandparents. One of my parents is buried there along with various aunts and uncles and cousins and, and all kinds of people. Our family has a plot, and there's a section of graves and potential graves. It's about 16 plots of size, and then there's another set of plots over here that has sort of a different branch of the family. But 
But the reality is, is that um, odds are, God willing, Christy and I will be buried there one day near my parents, next to my grandparents. My great-grandparents are over in another section. But we will be able to and already can walk to this area in a cemetery and see the generations laid out in this one place. Joseph is compelled to express his devotion to Jesus in an incredibly personal way. Because I don't know about, again, some people don't feel like this way. Some people are like, man, when I'm dead, man, you can do whatever you want with me because I'm not here anymore and I don't care. But here's my feeling. If all of a sudden there was a random stranger sitting in the middle of our plot, if I went to on Memorial Day and laid the flowers at these graves and I went, Grandma and Granddaddy and Mom and cousin and aunt and uncle and and whatever, and then random dude. That would be weird. That would be weird. I, I don't, again, you may not feel that way. You might be like, man, who cares? Eh, just give them, give them all away. I don't know. But that, that would be an incredibly personal thing for me to allow someone into that space that is meant for me and my family. And I think that's the case with Joseph. Joseph is doing something that is incredibly personal. So Joseph, we see this public display of devotion to Jesus, but we also see this personal cost that's being paid among a remnant, a few and faithful who were left behind. And again, trying times make it harder to be faithful. It's harder for him to be faithful in these times. Yes, The saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? Yeah, that's true. But you know what also happens during those times of martyrdom? Tons of people walk away, too. Tons of people give up the faith when it gets super costly. And so even when people don't fall away in those situations, they still compromise in all kinds of ways. And yet in the life of Joseph, we see a willingness to sacrifice and pay the cost. And you know what? Also, we see it in these women at the very end of the passage. This beautiful picture of these women who are faithful and uncompromising as they follow Jesus, even in his death. Verse 54 says, it was the day of preparation, the Sabbath was beginning, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That's the key word. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, as our focus shifts from Joseph to the women, these women who had followed Jesus during his whole ministry. All right. So John tells us the names of some of these women. They include Mary, the mother of Jesus. They include Mary's sister who may be Mary, the wife of Clopas, but man, that seems weird that you would name both your kids Mary. Okay, so that's probably, it probably means Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' mother's sister, another woman named Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. Just for the record, you might go, why are these people named Mary? Why is every single one of them? Okay, what what we have, again, from archaeology, it seems to be the case that probably roughly one in five women 
in the Jewish era was named Mary. It was the most popular name to be named. So that's why it seems weird, but you're like, there's five women here and four of them are named Mary, okay? Um, just for the record, I've said this before. Man, I think that is a great little clue and testimony to the authenticity of the Bible. Because if you were making up these stories, good grief, certainly you would give these people different names, right? You would have been like, all right, this is Mary and Susanna and Elizabeth and Jezebel or whatever, right? You would not say, yeah, they're all named Mary. Every single one of them is named Mary. The only reason you would do that is if all of them were named Mary. They just happen to all be named Mary. There are other Marys that are maybe the same Marys, but we're not sure. Mark includes the names Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph. There's another woman named Salome um, who is part of this group. And so, again, we're not sure the relationship. Some of them could be the same people. But there are these women who are very close to Jesus, his mother, relatives of Jesus, women who he has healed in his ministry. And when Jesus is taken down from the cross on this worst of bad days, okay, if you are Mary, the mother of Jesus, there's never going to be a day worse than this, okay? If you are anybody that loves Jesus or cares about him, a friend or a family member, there's never going to be a day worse than this day. And yet notice they still follow the commands of God like they would any other day. There would be a thousand excuses on this day to do things easier or different or in a way that made things whatever. Go ahead and clean the body of Jesus. Go ahead and prepare the body of Jesus right now. Who cares if the sun's going down, right? The Sabbath will be here tomorrow. We'll be here for a couple extra hours tonight, and we can just go ahead and get it done so we can go home and mourn. We can go home and rest. We can go home and and and, and try to figure out what we're going to do after the events that have taken place this day. Besides Jesus, and Jesus is this great prophet of God. You know, I don't know that everybody quite understands exactly who Jesus is at this point. They don't understand what it means to be a Messiah. It would make complete sense that he would get special treatment in some way, that he was so holy, that he was so important that we should probably put everything else on hold because he needs to be taken care of. There's a million excuses you could have made. But no, these women simply obey God in the midst of unusual and trying circumstances. Here's the thing, again, in a remnant situation, if the case is is that the remnant has to be identified, man, circumstances are going to be unusual. If we get to a point in our culture, in our nation, where there are only a few people who are still believing, those circumstances are going to be weird. There's going to be all kinds of crazy dangers and pitfalls and obstacles that we have to deal with, inconveniences, hurdles. And there will be all kinds of opportunities for us to say, well, certainly God can't expect us to blank. God can't expect us to obey him on this particular instance, given the circumstances that we now find ourselves in. We can't possibly love or serve or meet needs or evangelize in this context that we now find ourselves in, in this situation. But the answer, of course, is yes, you can. 
You can, and they do. Again, not to bring up, man, all the, the goofiness and stuff of COVID, but that was one of the most disturbing things about COVID and the shutdowns was how quickly people just gave up things, how quickly people took things that were central to Christian practice and then just stopped meeting, stopped talking to each other, stopped sharing the Lord's Supper with each other, stopped giving hugs, stopped giving handshakes. Like what they just said, yeah, we're not doing these. The circumstances demand that we do something different now. And again, I know there's all kinds of, that's, we're not going back there. We're not, there's all kinds of craziness and all kinds of things that we have to weigh in short term and long term. But man, here's the reality. And I can tell you this as a pastor who looks at those statistics. There are lots of people who never came back. There are lots of people who just sort of said, oh, cool. We live in a new day now and I'm not going back to church or, or whatever. So the deal is for these women, all of their hopes, all of their dreams are dashed at this point. Their beloved teacher, son, nephew, needs to be attended to. So what are we going to do? Well, in the words of probably many of you are familiar with, with a guy named Oswald Chambers. So Oswald Chambers was a Scottish Baptist evangelist. He was probably best known for writing this little book, this little devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest. And, you know, you, you see lots of people are aware of that book. So Oswald Chambers had this saying that we find in um, My Utmost Force Highest, and it is this. He says, trust God and do the next thing. Trust God and do the next thing. That's what these women do. In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the upheaval, in the midst of the craziness of this moment, what are we going to do? Do we throw all the rules out the window? Do we start living in a completely new way? Do we do we get rid of tradition and command and everything because the circumstances demand it? No, what do they do? They basically say, we're going to trust God and we're going to do what he's told us to do. And you know what he's told us? On the Sabbath, you don't work. And so we're going to put Jesus in his tomb. We're not going to give him the normal honors that we would give a dead body because we don't have time, but we're going to come back here as soon as the Sabbath's over and we're going to anoint his body. And we're going to do the things that we're supposed to. Kind of in closing, I know this is super cliche, but I'm going to end with a poem. Okay. Baptist, you know, there's the whole thing about you get three points in a poem and that's a Baptist sermon. You can go any church in the world and find three points in a poem on any given Sunday, right? I'm going to end with a poem. So most of you or many of you might be familiar with, with a lady named Elizabeth Elliot. So she was the wife of Jim Elliot, who, along with his, his uh, fellow missionaries, was killed in the 1950s in the Amazon jungle while trying to uh, make contact and evangelize a group of, of natives there called the Hurani tribe. And so after Elizabeth's husband... Jim Elliot is killed. You know the story. Here she is, um, now a single woman in a foreign country in the 1950s, dead husband. She has an infant child at this point. Certainly, the circumstances would call for her to 
break vows that she has made to God, to change plans, to turn her whole life in a different direction, to say all the things that I believed and promised you, God, to get down here, well, it's a new day. And none of those things count anymore because everything's different now. And I'm going to go about my life and do these other things. But that's not what happened. No, Elizabeth Elliot stayed. She learned the language of the Harani, and she went back into that tribe to minister to the people who had murdered her husband. She was helped by uh, a woman who's, uh, who's uh, Rachel Saint, I think her name was, who was the, her brother was one of the men who was also killed in it. And these two women learned the language and went back into this tribe. And in God's providence, it turns out that men entering into a violent tribe were seen as threats. But these women coming in with babies on their hips were not seen as threats. They were allowed to talk and minister. And eventually, there was a great revival that happened in that tribe. And many people came to Christ. Uh, and the whole culture of the violence of this tribe was shifted and, and changed. So Elizabeth Elliot, she brought back to prominence this poem. And nobody knows who the author of the poem is. Um, but obviously the person had probably read Oswald Chambers. And the, and, and the poem is, is sometimes called Trust God and Do the Next Thing after that line. And so it goes like this. It says, many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrows, child of the king. Trust them with Jesus and do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before who placed it before thee with earnest command, stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all the results and do the next thing. That's what we do. When these ladies ask, what shall we do? Well, the Sabbath is starting, so we will obey God. We will cease from our work. And on Sunday, when the sun comes up, we will come and we will care for the body. Our obedience will not be dictated by our circumstances. We will obey, come what may, and we will do the next thing. I love the irony of this story because Joseph gives this costly personal gift of a tomb that Jesus is only going to need for a day. And these women in this act of obedience, say, we'll be back Sunday morning to anoint the dead body. There's not going to be a dead body. That's a beautiful picture of even our own obedience, right? God doesn't need that. The story is going to be the same on Sunday morning. God doesn't need that obedience from us. If Joseph had been unfaithful, if the women had been unfaithful, the story would have still ended the same way. And yet they were faithful and God honors those things. And yet there is an incredible resurrection, an incredible change of events that makes all of those things ultimately unnecessary. That's a cool picture. So live your life as a remnant. That's what I would say. 
Again, we may not live in an era this minute where we are quite a remnant yet. We might still be in a majority at some level, although I don't know if that's true either. But the reality is, is Jesus has called us to a remnant life. We see examples of that remnant life in between his death and resurrection. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask that God would work these things in our hearts. Ask that if we see these days in our own lifetimes, that we would be faithful, that we would trust God, and that we would do the next thing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that while it may often feel as if we are living on Good Friday, God, that we have the hope and the anticipation of Resurrection Sunday to look forward to. God, we know that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, God, we are called to remain faithful, to trust in you, and to persevere, to keep moving forward in obedience in all the things that you have called us to. God, help us to do that. Help us to emulate the lives of these servants of yours who are living as Jesus called them to. God, help us to live lives of public cost when it comes to Christ. Help us to live lives of personal cost when it comes to the Christian faith. And God, help us, God, to be faithful even in the midst of trial and difficulty. And to no matter the circumstances, that we would do the next thing that you have called us to. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song.
face with your on every side. Don't be doubtful, Mr. Lord. Then as a son God is Touch beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen. And as the storm is rolled away, can we see the chicks from the grave? Stay too you still the day. Every eye and heart shall see. And every stride, give grace for every word. Thank you in the prize of a servant good and faithful. Thanks of still by the way, he's telling tracks of his grace. The poor the day, and the Christ was standing Amen. Uh, good to see you. Um, happy Palm Sunday. Hope you have a great um, week as we continue to think on and reflect on um, the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. Um, would love to see you at, at St. Brennan's Anglican on Friday if you can make it. Um, but if not, hope to see you here Sunday morning, 11 a.m., um, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Surfacing on my feet, uh, Jane, Sir, and Gold.
Had guitar solos like every Sunday. They'd be Same time. You see, 
You reminded me of something in your sermon. No. 